Welcome to Sustain What, a series of conversations seeking solutions where complexity and consequence collide. That's basically on just about every sustainability frontier, from shaping a safer relationship with Earth's climate to building more civil online relationships with each other. As we say here in the Communication Initiative of the Columbia Climate School, the word sustainability has no meaning on its own. The first step towards success is to ask, sustain what, how, and for whom? This program contains audio highlights from hundreds of video webcasts, which you can explore on your own at j.mp slash sustainwhatlive. I'm Dale Willman, Associate Director of Columbia's Initiative on Communication and Sustainability. The webcast was created and is hosted most of the time by Andy Revkin, the longtime environmental journalist, sometime songwriter, and founding director of the initiative. Read his related dispatches at revkin.bulletin.com. And now, sustain what? Hello, my name is Severine Martin. I'm the director of Columbia University's undergraduate program in Paris, and it is my pleasure to welcome you today for the inaugural conversation of Entre Nous, an interdisciplinary series featuring dialogues between scholars, journalists, and artists from around the world. The American Library in Paris, Columbia Global Centers Paris, and the Institute for Ideas and Imagination are honored to collaborate together on this series, beginning with tonight's conversation on how we can meet the challenges of climate change and global inequality. We hope this series is as inspiring for you as it has, has been for us creating it. Without further ado, I'm pleased to introduce Andrew Refkin, an award-winning journalist with over 40 years of experience writing on climate issues and other environmental challenges, mostly for the New York Times and now at refkinbulletin.com. In 2019, Andrew founded the Columbia Climate School's Initiative on Communication and Sustainability, he now runs a popular webcast series called Sustain What. In conversation with Andrew, we have Roman Krisnarik, a public philosopher who writes about the power of ideas to change society. His latest book is The Good Ancestor, How to Think Long-Term in a Short-Term World. His previous international bestsellers, including Empathy, The Wonder Box, and Carpe Diem, Regained, have been translated into multiple languages. Kay Rayworth is a renegade economist focused on making economics fit 21st century realities. She is the co-founder of Donut Economics Action Lab. Her internationally best-selling and widely influential book, Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist, has been translated into over 20 languages. She is a senior associate at Oxford University's Environmental Change Institute. Having said that, Andrew, the floor is all yours. Well, this is uh, a really deep pleasure. I've, I've gotten to know uh, Roman and Kate. Well, Kate actually met Kate face-to-face -face back in those days on the campus of Columbia University three or four years ago. Maybe it's like 30 or 40 years ago, COVID time. <laughs> um, and I sat, I do have a video of our interview somewhere. Someday I'll, I'll find that clip and post it. Uh, your work is fantastically innovative and kind of flipping scripts on both the sort of ecosystem and human system models and how to integrate them better. And Roman, I've had you on my show, uh, uh, both of you, uh, Kate with uh, Herman Daly, who 
was one of the uh, pioneers of this field called ecological economics. That, that was one of the best viewed shows ever. And young people are so sparked by both of you in, in that one. And, and Roman, you know, this idea of bringing the future into the room uh, in a way that's meaningful and actionable is so important. Uh, you know, my approach, my, my experience in this whole field has been journalistic. Uh, just for those who haven't met me before, it was back in 1988, in, in the year 350 parts per million, when I wrote this cover story on global warming, uh, which sort of says, the cover line is the greenhouse effect this summer was merely a warm up. And in the inside, it's all about uh, both the mitigation of emissions and adaptation to what's unavoidable. And there is a certain feeling of Groundhog Day without without the movie getting better for all of those who are in this arena. So I want to start with both of you asking you a little bit about how you became who you are so far. And we're all on journeys, so I'm saying so far. I don't think there's a full definition either of you would have for where you'll be end up in 30 more years. But uh, maybe we'll start with Kate and um, then we'll get into the specifics of your, your modeling. So, so how did you get to be where you are? You know, why, why this issue? Why this approach? What, what made you who you are so far? So back in 1988, I was a 17-year-old teenager trying to figure out what I wanted to study. And I was learning about the world through the TV news. And I remember hearing about the greenhouse effect. I remember on BBC News and they showed this little greenhouse and the sun's rays. And, and I remember the ozone layer opening up. And I remember a famine in Ethiopia. So I remember the really iconic event, social and environmental of the 1980s and naive or crazy I don't know which I thought that studying economics would give me the the mother tongue of public policy and so I wanted to study economics so that I'd have the tools to start addressing some of these issues so in the early 1990s I went to university to study economics and I was just really frustrated and disappointed by what I was taught because climate change didn't come anywhere close to it at all. There wasn't even an option to study environmental economics. And by the end of my three years of study, I just was so, so disconnected from the frameworks that I've been taught. I never wanted to say, you know, hello, I'm an economist. I never wanted to introduce myself that way. So I walked away from it and immersed myself in uh, working in Zanzibar with Barefoot Entrepreneurs for three years. I worked on the Human Development Report at the UN for four years. I worked with Oxfam for over a decade, on workers' rights and global supply chains. I'm very proud that I was part of the team in 2006 that convinced Oxfam to start campaigning on climate change. In fact, when we first suggested it, the head of Oxfam said, but we are not an environmental organization. This is not our issue. And we campaigned internally to say, hang on, this has massive implication for people's lives, for human rights, for the poorest societies and people in the world. And to her credit, she turned around and put climate change at the heart of Oxfam's work. So right. that's where I came from. Um, and then I became a mother. And I have to admit, right, just full disclaimer of information at this point for anybody listening. Roman and I are partners. We're married and we have twins together. So um, in 2008, just as the world was melting into financial meltdown and all the economists were saying, oh, we need to rewrite economics to reflect financial realities, we had twins. And we were immersed in the unpaid caring work of the household, figuring out what that means. And, and when I heard all these economists saying, oh yes, we need to rewrite economics to reflect financial realities, I just thought, I'll be damned if we're only gonna do it for that. 
let's reflect the unpaid caring work of the household in which we are knee deep right now. Let's reflect climate and ecological breakdown, which was missing from my studies and I, so far as I see it missing still today. Let's reflect the huge social inequalities in the world. So let's bring everything that's been missing from economics for decades. And, that, and that's how I started walking back to economics. That's why I called myself a renegade economist. That was the only way I could use that word in my name. And, and, and that resulted in the book Donut Economics. Right. You know, in our conversation with Herman Daly, I remember he said that a lot of the programs, including the one that he founded in ecological economics, are no longer no longer exists at, at the universities. So I, I was going to ask, you know, how, is part of your goal to normalize renegade renegadeness? Or is this about the uh, another great ecologist, um, Jose Lutzenberger, who I met in the Amazon writing my book there in 1989, he said, um, he used the word radical in, in a way that we don't think of these days uh, as the Latin root is to get to the root, <laughs> to yeah. find the systems and work on them. Is, is there a prospect of normalizing this or would that be actually, can it be normalized? Would that end up making it, breaking it? So when I first started saying renegade, it was about in 2013, it was to, it's actually a really great provocation of a conversation. I'm a renegade economist. People go, like, oh, what's that? They also don't immediately walk away because if you say I'm an economist, a lot of people are like, uh, see you later. I'm just uh, off to chat to somebody over there. So saying renegade economist immediately politicizes it, immediately shows that you're somehow engaged and, and it, it's opened so many conversations and it's playful. Now people right. say to me, why, why do you introduce yourself as a renegade economist? That makes it sound like what you're talking about is weird or different. So it's interesting that, uh, and I, I've started moving towards saying 21st century economics, economics that's fit for our times. And that still raises a question of what is that? But th then it centers more that 21st century economics is surely the only kind of economics you'd really want to be studying. So it's interesting how, yeah, the renegade or the radical, some, at some point, of course, you wanted to become the normal and what we're doing without getting greenwashed on the way. Yeah, well, well, we'll talk more about the specifics of this concepts you've come up with in, in, in a minute. Uh, so, so Roman, over to you and this title of public philosopher. Um, I came, you know, I took one philosophy course in college and, and it was, I really didn't engage much in it. And it was a climate scientist, Ken Caldera, who led me back to the importance of it just in the last 15 years, some conversation we had. And he talked about uh, Hume and, and uh, that you can't get an, uh, an ought from an is. You know, climate science is telling us what is, but it doesn't necessarily instruct us in what ought we do. And philosophy seems so, uh, to many of us, it feels not very useful, inutile, as they might say in France. Uh, but it's like fundamental. So how, what does a public philosopher hope to, to do with your books and your your discourse? Well, I stole that concept of a public philosopher from um, a, a Dutch friend of mine who, you know, in, in the Netherlands, they have this great position called the, I think it's like a sort of philosopher, the, the, the philosopher of the nation. Um, it's like the philosopher laureate, like there's a poet laureate in many countries. And, and the Dutch have this concept of a, a public philosopher. And I really love that idea because when I studied philosophy as an undergraduate, I found it incredibly dry and narrow and unconnected with the world. But I'd always been driven by these questions of how to live. And I guess I started shifting from the question of how should I live to the question of how should we live? In other words, the collective decisions we need to make and how do we manage ourselves in communities on the one world, on the one planet we know that sustains life. 
And that to me is what public philosophy is about. It's about asking those questions of how to live for us collectively uh, as a species. But, you know, my route to get there um, was very sort of roundabout. I wasn't with the Barefoot Entrepreneurs of, of Zanzibar, but I actually started in a maybe a slightly more conservative place, which was a political science department. And I did a PhD in political science. And um, I started at that time becoming interested in the concept of empathy and the power of being able to put ourselves in the positions of others and the way that that could create social and political change. And I decided to leave academia uh, totally. And I started working with an organization called the Oxford Muse, spelled M-U-S-E, with a historian called Theodore Zeldin. And one of the things we did is we used to, the organization was set up to create conversations between strangers, to get young and old, rich and poor, people from different religions together, talking about the stuff that really mattered in life. So we did these events where we'd have put, invite people for lunch, but instead of giving them a menu of food, we gave them a menu of conversation with questions on it, like, what have you learned about the different varieties of love in your life? Or in what ways would you like to be more courageous? And it was all about really trying to step into the shoes of the other, see the world from another person's perspective. And I learned an enormous amount from that. And it encouraged me to then go on and start researching and writing about empathy. I wrote a book about empathy. And then I founded a museum called the Empathy Museum, which in fact is just um, opening, it travels around the world, it's opening in Italy uh, this week. And one of the exhibits we have is called A Mile in My Shoes, and it's a gigantic shoebox. And you can walk inside that shoebox and literally wear the shoes of a stranger, a Syrian refugee, um, a Brazilian judge, a Quaker pacifist, and you can walk a mile in their shoes while listening to an audio narrative of them talking about their own life in their own words. So it's very powerful. Um, it's very intimate and immersive. But for me, it's also raised a question, the question of my latest book, The Good Ancestor, which is, okay, we can try and step into the shoes of people in today's world. But how do we step into the shoes of people in tomorrow's world? How do we jump our imaginations across the generations? How do we have a conversation beyond the here and now? And that seems what's so essential to me that we need to kind of reinvent the art of conversation. So my role as a public philosopher now is to try and have those conversations with the people who aren't here. That's so fantastic. The closest I came to that so far in one of the shows that I've done, like the ones you've been on, was I had Kim Stanley Robinson on, the uh, author of Ministry of for the Future, and, and Alexandria Villasenor. You're talking yeah. about Roman's total hero there. <laughs> he, that book is so prismatic and psychedelic and full of nuggets, uh, it's hard to even explain. But So he's writing the story of the future as, as a novelist, and I had on Alexandria Villasenor, who's a 14-year-old U.S.-based uh, activist, uh, one of the early founders of Fridays for Future. So the future was in the room, at least within a generation. Uh, but your work, again, takes us further. In fact, um, uh, Kate was talking about the 21st century economics. Um, I would imagine you think, you're thinking also about the millennial economics, like the third millennium economics. Uh, you know, what fits on that scale, too? And, and it's when we finding these ways to broaden our landscape of, of, of this human mind that's so here and now seems to be still a total frontier. I, I can't tell you, you know, it's 230 shows I did since COVID started on that, that webcast. Many of them are exploring what comes out, becomes that question. So Kate, back to you in the sense that one way I think you've, be, you've been able to engage um, in a concrete way from the, these 
basic concepts is creating a template that can be useful at the scale of a village, perhaps even the scale of a household. I'm not sure if it's been used as a household menu. Uh, uh, and then that's the scale of policy. Um, some of you, I went to the market a little while ago and you know, I got this <laughs> donut. I, it's a donut. It's a, it's actually a bagel. That's a psychedelic. <laughs> it's, <pretty> cosmic. <laughs> yeah. it's a very cosmic bagel. But, you know, there's been this concept of circularity, uh, you know, McDonough's um, uh, cradle to grave uh, work, um, circular economy. What, what makes the donut or bagel different? Maybe you could get into that concreteness now a little bit. Sure, and I'm going to take advantage of the fact that I've given myself a black background today, because actually right behind my black background is bookshelves like, like you two, so I thought I would, I would buck the bookshelves and go for all black so I can show you some shapes. And the reason right. of the shape of the donut or the bagel, it doesn't matter whether it's a donut or a bagel or a simit or something else, it's the shape that matters, because the shape of what we think progress is, is profoundly important in our minds in our language, in our metrics, and in our worldview. And let's say the 20th century has given us the inheritance of imagining the shape of progress looks a bit like this. Endless growth, right? And it's this is the GDP growth curve that we see reported again and again. And even if you've never actually seen it drawn in an economics textbook, you hear it in every political speech and you hear it in every macroeconomics class about GDP growth. And this is assumed to be the shape of progress national income increasing year on year on year on year on year forever no matter how rich a nation already is you're sitting in the us we're sitting in the uk these are two of the richest nations ever in the history of humanity speak to any one of our politicians or economists and they will tell you that the success of our nations lies in yet more growth so that is deeply ingrained in the 20th century mindset and yet there's some other hockey stick curves that come along with this, right? Carbon emissions, look, well, look where it's led us in terms of carbon emissions, in terms of biodiversity loss. So it's coming with huge ecological degradation. It's also, by the way, not leading us to meet the needs of all people. There are billions of people still with their most essential needs unmet. So this is not an adequate shape of progress. And that's why I drew a new diagram. Um, I have one here. I know you have one that you could also flash up. I'll flash up this one. It's uh, the donut. I like, I like that better. You like that better. Okay, so let's go with this. So, so it looks like a donut. And imagine humanity's use of Earth's resources radiating out from the middle of this picture. So the hole in the middle, that's a place where people are left falling short on the essentials of life. This is where people do not have the resources they need for enough food, water, healthcare, education, housing, political voice, equality, social equity, income. These are crowdsourced from the world's governments. They are the 12 social dimensions of the sustainable development goals. And the power of crowdsourcing them there is that all the governments in the world have already agreed that every person in the world has a right not to be left in this hole falling short. So, so far so good. Leave no one in the hole. But as we use Earth's resources to meet the needs of all, we start to push up against what's here called the environmental ceiling. We start to put so much pressure on the life support systems of our planet we begin to kick them out of kilter. And that's where we cause climate breakdown and we acidify the oceans. We create a hole in the ozone layer. We break down the fabric of life through biodiversity loss. We withdraw too much water, use too much fertilizer, chemical pollution, air pollution. These are crowdsourced from the world scientists. These are the nine planetary boundaries that many earth system scientists recognized just over a decade ago. 
they say these are the life supporting systems that make life work on this planet. This is what gives us the stable climate, fertile soils, ample water, abundant biodiversity. This reproduces the conditions conducive to life again and again for the century, for the millennia ahead. And this is what enables us to meet the needs of all people. Without it, it is impossible. So in the simplest of terms, the goal of the donor is to meet the needs of all people within the means of the living planet. And the shape of progress is utterly changed. It is not endless growth. It is a dynamic balance found in that space in between. If I just do it with my hands, it looks like this. It's balanced. The search foundation, the ecological ceiling, and, and, and you can instantly see that looks like a heartbeat. It's already connecting us more to the shape of life. So that's the vision of getting into the donut. Now it's easy to ask the question, how do we get into the donut? And I think it literally is a century long answer and ex experiment and adventure we are on to figure out how to do it. it it's a great model. Um, the, the one thing that I think about when I look at it too is, well, as we all know, those, those, those general curves of things like GDP can hide inequity enormously, you can have a beautifully functioning growth economy. And if it's not including the care economy, we, we did a session on this, uh, the unpaid work, the, uh, the structures that we don't think about that make it possible to have a healthcare system, uh, to have healthcare for healthcare workers, for example, then, then it's impossible to measure. So, so within that structure, if you're thinking about how, how does that economic in inequity map out on that that so I, I was working at Oxfam actually when I drew this model. And so the importance of showing the, the worst off, the most deprived, those who are falling short was really important to me. Here, here's the global donut with metrics plotted on it, right? So on the outside is how we're overshooting planetary boundaries. That comes from the Earth system scientists. For example, this, this ceiling on, on climate change is 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And we know we're over 415. So we're overshooting and must come back in. Now let's go on the inside. This is all the people in the world. Here's the food. Ah, uh, good, 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 yeah. Right? That little red wedge there on food goes 11% of the way to the middle of the circle because 11% of people worldwide, according to the FAO, don't have enough food to eat every day. So, and, and even if you did a national donut, right? You, you'd see the extent to which people are falling short. So no matter how rich some people are, no matter how high the average is, if people are falling below the basic minimum, it's going to show up here. So this highlights the most deprived on purpose, because otherwise we get lost and carried away with averages and growth right. and failing to see that some people do not even have their most basic needs met. So it actually actively highlights inequalities. So that that's great. Uh, and now let's let's get to the um, the ethics part of philosophy, and with for both of you. But maybe Roman can weigh in first. Um, the ethical frames that get applied to sustainability are sometimes more complicated than we think. I, you know, we th we've heard a lot about climate justice, uh, climate injustice, which is what was just revealed and what Kate was talking about. Uh, there's also energy injustice. In other words, there are parts of the world. I'll just give an example from what's happening ahead of Glasgow, the COP26. Uh, John Kerry, who I've known, you know, as a source and as a journalist for decades, he's got what I feel is an antiquated approach to pressing countries to act, uh, and an, uh, I would almost say immoral um, approach. Actually, it's it's he's wagging his finger at countries like uh, India, 
with a two ton per person per year contribution to that emissions part of the donut. From the standpoint of a 15 ton per person per year country and saying you need to do more. And I, I see this many times in other aspects of the climate discourse right now that where those who put climate in the foreground, slowing warming, are missing the vulnerability reduction that is really as primary a, an imperative as anyone would want to have a donut. That's kind of a working, a working system. Uh, how do you can we convey that part of the the empathy point you made in your previous book? I think is really important here. But then it's like, how do you integrate that into decision making at, at like COP twenty six or the like? How does that is that possible? It's very fundamental, actually, because of you know the the book I've written is really about how we think about the future and our relationship with it, and the way we think about the future is full of prejudices, biases, inequalities. Whether we're looking forward in time or backwards in time. So, you know, the great immunologist Jonas Salk, you know, we've spoken about him before in the past, Andy, you know, raised this question. He said, the great question about time is this, are we being good ancestors? Um, so how are we gonna be remembered by the generations to come? And that immediately raises that question of, well, what are our legacies going to be? And, and what have we inherited from the past? And if we think about our relationship with the past, clearly we've inherited Many of us have inherited some very positive things like the cities we live in or medical discoveries we benefit from, but we are also the inheritors of very negative and destructive legacies uh, in many parts of the world. So legacies of slavery and colonialism and racism that create deep inequities that must now be repaired and legacies, of course, of economies that are structurally addicted to fossil fuels and endless growth, as Kate said, that must now be transformed. And once you take that historical perspective, this is why time is so important, you can really start recognizing that when it comes to carbon emissions, exactly as you say, one has to take into account, you know, the per capita carbon emissions today and the historic emissions of, right. of, the, of the global north. And when I think about the future, one of the kind of metaphors I sometimes use is the idea that humankind has colonized the future. And that's really the idea that in wealthy countries, especially, we treat the future like a distant colonial outpost where we can freely dump ecological degradation and technological risk as if there was nobody there. But this dumping is unequal. It's particularly on the global south and vulnerable communities. And those future generations, particularly from those <laughs> vulnerable communities, don't have a say in our political right. decision making at national levels, at the global level, and so on. And the great um, uh, guy called Philip Alston, who you may, I don't know if he's ever been on your show, but former UN rapporteur for, special rapporteur for extreme poverty and human rights. He wrote this report a few years ago where he talked about the, the coming of climate apartheid, as he called it. And mm -hmm. what he meant by that was the differential effects of, of, of global heating. And he gave the example of Hurricane Sandy. So when it hit New York in 2012, said, right, Goldman Sachs was fine. They had their own generators and 10,000 sandbags. But then there were half a million New Yorkers, many of them people of color, who had no access to health care and education and transport and so on. So I think one of the, when we're thinking about time, one needs to think about structures of power and inequality, both past and present. And that's how I try and start asking those questions. 
Can I jump Fantastic. in with a response to uh, John Kerry? Um, I'm going to share my screen if that's okay. Oh, it'd be great if I could be allowed to share my screen because I think data can really help clarify. So you, you gave this example of John Kerry wagging his finger at India, and I'm thinking, what has America got to say to India about why India should cut? And I, the only thing I can think of is the sheer scale of the country. They're looking at right. somehow the aggregate national emissions. It's like, oh, India, you've got a lot of emissions. But of course, let's take it to um, per capita. So I'm just going to quickly share my screen. This is uh, the way we usually show it. And I love showing this to high income countries, by the way, in places like Finland, Norway, Sweden, countries that usually think, oh, we're really, really good on climate. I love showing these slides. So here's the global donor I was showing a minute ago. This is all the people in the world and the, our, our shared impact on the planet. But of course, the question very quickly comes, well, what about my country? How are we putting pressure on the planet? So here are three of 150 national donuts created by some fantastic researchers, Dan O'Neill, Andrew Fanning, and others at Leeds University. Oh, and what they great. did was, yeah, they took different nations and the available comparable international data, and they scaled them down on a per capita basis. So they took the national impacts, and then they divided them by the number of people in the country. So what you've got on the one end is Malawi. And by the way, India would look very like this. If I could show you India right now, I just grabbed mm -hmm. a slide I had. So Malawi, sure. a lot of red in the middle. You can see many, many people have not met their most essential needs in life. There's a lot of human deprivation there, but on a per capita comparison scale, they have not overshot their pressure on any of the planetary boundaries. And they're living on around $1,000 per person per year. That's what the national economy is generating. China in the middle is like quite a lot of countries, many middle-income countries, some significant shortfall on meeting people's needs, already overshooting multiple planetary boundaries. So that's a double whammy. And then let's look at the US. And by the way, Australia looks a lot like this. Even Finland and Sweden look like this. Um, the US on a, over $66 per person per year generated income still isn't meeting everybody's needs. There's a lot of inequality. That's the red wedge you can see there. But massive overshoot of planetary boundaries on a per person basis. Now, I'm just going to show you one more slide. I can take those countries and add them to 150. The sweet spot is that top left hand corner. That is where you would be meeting all the social thresholds and so meeting all the social needs of all people without over, overshooting those planetary boundaries. And the first thing we see is there's no country there. You can see I've got Malawi, China and the US. So every nation is on a journey of transformation, right? Moving in a direction that countries have never moved in before. Countries have usually moved from the bottom left, swept up to the top right. So every country, I would say this shows us all nations are developing nations now. There's no country in the world that should be calling itself developed right. or advanced. There ain't none. I've never been to one because the richest countries are doing it by massively undermining the life support systems of planet Earth. Last thing to say, these countries stand like separate dots on the page, but of course they are profoundly interconnected through histories of colonialism, through military power, through current trade and finance rules, through ongoing resource extraction, and of course the current and future impacts of climate change. And so this calls for transformation within every nation and between all nations. So if I could put this in front of John Kerry, I don't know how he would wag his finger at India. Look at India, down at the bottom, barely overshooting planetary boundaries, a long way to go in meeting people's needs. Can I just ask you a question though, Kate, or maybe Andy as well? It, just what you're just saying there, Kate, just reminded me of um, at a TED talk uh, climate uh, countdown summit uh, last year. I remember there were two speakers from India with very different perspectives. One of them was saying we should have 
the right to emit more carbon than the countries of the global north because of this historical and colonial reasons. And then there was another speaker from India who had a very different perspective and said, no, we've got to jump straight to a green economy. We can't go through that, even part of that uh, sort of industrial form of um, economic development. We, we must go to you know, a different plane, as it were. So, I mean, clearly these are complex issues. So where, what do you both think about that? You want to go, Andy? Well, I, I, you run into this everywhere. Uh, I've been in uh, Inupiat uh, Eskimo communities in the Arctic, um, and they're dependent now on, on resource, on income from oil uh, extraction. And within, even within that community, you end up with these debates about uh, what the future should look like. And uh, I wrote a little bit in the Amazon, uh, there's a there's some tribes who actually have been fined by the government by one agent, the environmental agency is finding some tribes who have cut leases, lease deals with modern agriculture to grow crops on their land. And ethically, the, the agency that supports the indigenous rights in the Amazon is with is siding with the tribe. Uh, but there are other tribes who are doing beautiful work, uh, working extractive but sustainably within a forest, maintain it and keeping the fires out. So, I mean, that issue is uh, everywhere. And I, I think it's a tough one to resolve. Uh, when I've written about uh, the future of agriculture, you know, it's, it, we live on a variegated planet with, that needs flour from commodity crops and needs income crops grown by smallholders in Kenya. And, and the future is hybrid. You know, it will have all of these things, whether you, I, or anyone watching wants that or not. And that's just part of the reality. But Kate, maybe you want to weigh in. Well, I just would add to that, um, the transformation, I believe, yep, will be hybrid, will be complex and messy, and, and many things will be happening at the same time. I think in the simplest of terms, though, the onus to move first and fastest and biggest is on those high income, Absolutely. long polluting industrialized countries that, um, yeah, are, are putting by far 15 tons, you know, fresh on the planet. I, so that, I, I, I know we all agree on, I know we all agree yeah, on that. I, I absolutely agree on that. Well, it actually reminded me just last week, I was in some conversation, I was doing some uh, speaking events in Norway and Norway is a really interesting country, which of course, tends to come the, the top of every index on inequality, on equality and well-being and happiness and so on. Um, but once they are also one of the world's biggest drug dealers, that drug being fossil fuels, because they're the eighth biggest gas producer in the world, exporter in the world mm -hmm. and 15th biggest oil producer. And they have this amazing sovereign wealth fund valued at over uh, $2 trillion, I think, which is earmarked for helping future generations. So they're very long-term thinking in that sense in the sovereign wealth fund, but the income for the sovereign wealth fund comes from the, 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 the gas and oil uh, revenues. So domestically, they look all very clean and nice and have hydro, you know, hydroelectricity, but they're exporting this drug. Um, and right. they absolutely have the means to make this transition faster than almost anywhere else in the world. They've got this sovereign wealth fund that can help them create you know, a transition to a kind of a green new deal. They've got 160,000 people who work in the oil industry. But if any country has, is possible, can possibly do that, the Norwegians can and should and should lead the world on it. This is such a core issue. I, back in 2010 on my blog at the New York Times, my daughter's blog, 
uh, I was musing, this was when we had the, the Millennium Development Goals. This is before the Sustainable Development Goals. But I wrote a piece and the, the headline was, do the top billion need new goals? Because everything was about bringing up, quote unquote, the least developed nations and not nothing. And even in the SDGs, you know, now they do integrate more of that. What does the top billion need to do? But I don't think that that's really adequately in the conversation yet. Uh, even the Framework Convention on Climate Change, the, the, the foundation of the Paris Agreement, you know, it's talked about common but differentiated responsibilities. And that's basically a morally centered argument. That's all about what you've just been saying. Uh, there are some wonderful questions coming in and I'd love to be sure we have, we leave enough time for them. Um, the, the question I will ask just briefly before we get to them is about incremental versus transformational change. Uh, a lot of my young friends, a lot of my, the people on the Columbia campus, uh, uh, activists in the street, uh, Fridays for Future, you know, they have gr great energy, uh, the Green New Deal. Much of that push and the emotion is centered around revolution, transformation. You, uh, you have the UK spawned uh, is Extinction Rebellion. Yet, a lot of what we've been talking about so far is really incremental. Uh, how do we, I, what I love about the donut is it's about directionality. You know, these the things are heading that way. What can we do to measurably turn them around? So, so maybe quickly brief of you on, on this question of incremental versus transformation. Uh, realistically, how do you address that? Is what do you foresee is necessary? So, I think we do need transformation of our mindsets. Uh, we need to move away from thinking that we need to be sustainable. But with sustainable growth, growth of course, and make it more sustainable and a bit more equitable. And I think we actually need to take on a, a much more systems thinking mindset that says life on Earth must be regenerative by design. Otherwise, if it's not, it's degenerative. It must be distributive by design. If it's not, it's divisive. So we need to transform the fundamental dynamics, and that's a big shift in our thinking. And we don't yet know what that kind of policy actually looks like in practice or what those business models and enterprises would look like if they're doing it. What I've seen and learned from both companies and governments that are aiming to turn things around is if you say, OK, let's let's make this doable, let's make this feasible, let's be 20 percent better, whether it's a company or government, the what I've heard people say this again and again. If you say we're going to cut our carbon emissions by 20%, most people in the organizations think, well, that's not me. <laughs> it, it, that must be some other department. If you say we're going to cut by even 70 or 80%, you're going to get people coming running lobbying as to why they should be the exception. If you say we are making 100% turnaround, everybody just knows, okay, this affects me, I'm in. And it just absolutely ratchets up the ambition and the clarity. So I've just seen people say time and again, just go for a transformational goal because it will give the clarity of the message. I like Amsterdam's goal around circularity. They say, we're gonna be a 100% circular city by 2050. We don't even know what that means, but they're going for it. And, we, and to get there, that's way too far away. We're gonna be 50% mm. circular by 2030. That's less than a decade. So in less than a decade, Amsterdam is saying that half of the materials that are in use in our city are going to be being used again and again. And to make that start happening now, we're going to have 10% circularity in government procurement contracts from next year. Now, I hear people say, oh, let's be more regenerative or more sustainable. And I always think, well, you know, Kennedy didn't say let's get closer to the moon. 
Like, are we going to get there or not? So that's what I've learned. And that's coming from practitioners. Transformative ambition is what actually drives action. That's so cool. Uh, actually, I wrote about this in 2009 at one of the giant oil companies, uh, BP. Uh, John Brown left a legacy there of best practices, not being a number, but being an attitude. And they did a lot of, they've done terrible things. And even after this 2009 story, there was the oil spill in the Gulf, but their gas operations, they had a culture of leak reduction to zero. And they, they attained it. So within that little part of that giant company with all of its problems, there was a culture. There was a guy, he was kind of like the uh, Australian shepherd, uh, the, the, the sheepdog who was running around the world just visiting everybody once in a while and saying, how are you doing? And that felt like a really important prod toward, um, toward zero as well. And it, it became kind of a cultural thing. So, and that, that excites me even with all the problems we have with oil companies still. But, but then uh, over to you, uh, uh, um, Roman, uh, for this question of revolution or, uh, or journey. I'm a big fan of disruption. Um, I was reading a really interesting uh, review of a couple of new books on the movement on, on the anti-slavery campaigns in Britain in the 1820s. Britain had abolished the slave trade in 1807, but still had slavery. And these couple of books that were being reviewed was about um, the resistance of um, politicians and business to um, these the movements that were trying to abolish slavery in, in, in Britain and Britain's involvement. And one of the things that they said was that the politicians and the business people would say, over and over again, we know slavery is wrong, but we can't abolish it too fast. Our economy is still very dependent on it. We've got to go slowly, baby steps, you know, maybe in five years time or 10 years time, you know, and it's, it, it sounds exactly like <laughs> carbon emissions, right? And, you know, I used to be, when I was a political scientist, my sort of main field of study was social movements. And one of the things I learned was about the importance of the radical flank. In other words, the most successful movements in history have often had radical elements that have um, created disruption, which have created and pushed elites to change. I mean, obvious examples being things like the militant wing of the suffragettes um, in Britain in the early 20th century. Of course, there was the nonviolent direct action of Gandhi in resistance against India in the civil rights movement in the United States, um, a whole load of disruption, breaking laws and so on. And so now, you know, I've been on and Kate's been on part of Extinction Rebellion um, protests where I think, I mean, I don't wanna speak for Kate, but I think for both of us, we probably think like, we don't wanna be out there breaking laws, but if that, you know, but by choice, but if governments haven't been acting for the last 30 years with all the knowledge in the world, well, there comes a point where you've tried the various avenues and the history books tell us that this kind of disruption makes a difference. It almost creates a sense of crisis, right? Which is what Greta Thunberg's trying to do in some way when she's saying, you know, your house is on fire, I want you to panic. You know, we need a sense of crises as well as genuine crises in a way coming together to kickstart more radical action. So that's broadly how I look at it. I think it's a historical empirical point about what works when it comes just to, to add, change. Sorry. Just to add one point on that, when I was working at Oxfam and we were campaigning against companies and we were demonstrating outside their headquarters or campaigning against governments, at the time, they will say to you, your campaign and your protest is not constructive. This is not working. And then you meet them a decade later, literally, and they say, oh, 
you know that campaign you ran against us that actually really put good pressure on us at the time and it gave me the sustainability manager actually gave me real entry to go and talk to the ceo and it worked so the same people will tell you actually thank you for that pressure because it gave us a permission or a reason a necessity to move so let's get to some questions there's some really good ones here i've got this my eyesight is not great, but I've got them on the screen. I might be squinting here for a second. Um, um, well, maybe this this builds on what you were just saying. Lindsay uh, Prowse uh, asks, more and more we've seen a new generation of young people leading by example and with a formidable sense of responsibility. What is the role of youth and, and uh, ecopreneurship in tackling the climate crisis? I assume by ecopreneurship, Lindsay's not just talking about uh, extinction rebellion, but innovators in industry or the corporate world or other places. So, what is, is that building basically on what you were just speaking about, or is there something specific here to, to dig in on a little more? Go for it, Roman. Well, actually, what comes to my mind there is actually the involvement of young people in um, a whole gamut of legal movements, actually which are trying to take governments to court um, for, in effect, violating the rights of future generations because of their um, slack carbon emission targets. I mean, there was a recent case in Germany when, where Fridays for Future Germany, so the youth movement took the German government to court and they won the case, basically saying that the, the German government was violating the rights of future generations. In the US, of course, you know, we've talked to Andy about this very long ongoing case where uh, our children's trust, Juliana versus the United States, where 21 young people have, are suing the US government for their um, violating their, their rights to a clean climate and healthy atmosphere for both current and future generations. There's court cases in Pakistan, Australia, all sorts of places. So there's a new kind of real leadership coming, I think, from the youth movement, which is not just on the streets, but actually making these legal incursions much more effective than I ever imagined um, that they would be. And so I feel there's so much leadership coming from young people, particularly in that realm, and but probably in other realms too. And maybe Kate has some more to say about that. Well, uh, sorry. Yep. No, well, I th I, I'm so struck by some the, the, the intolerance uh, of some young activists of the situation that many of us is it like Roman and I are both 50 years old, right? We're part of a generation that's since the early 1980s, certainly in the UK, witnessed privatization and deregulation. And this is just the way things are going, kids. This is what's normal. This is gonna be the successful economy. It all just unraveled slowly, pushed back and back and back and back. And I think a generation gets worn down or this becomes normalized. And I just see a, a, a rising of young people saying, why should it be this way? Why on earth would you put up with these results that this is driving? And, and so that's why you see a lot of young people really frustrated with the, the norms of political economy that many other people say, well, this is just how it is. And that's incredibly important. And I also think they're going to be incredible. They're going to take the technologies that are being invented today. They're taking the organizing, the distributed organizing, the new platform technologies. They'll create new legal forms. I think they will set up enterprises that don't yet exist, socially oriented enterprises. They'll show that business can be actually not at all about profit maximization. It can be a vehicle for transformation. So I have, I know we're going to be watching awe 
as we see a, a new generation of people just invent things, um, business forms, organizational forms, protest forms that an older generation could never have thought of because we're not part of the, the frustration and also the, the open-mindedness of youth who say, okay, this is the array of technologies and possibilities before me, I harness them. You know, we all know that older generations find new technologies intimidating. We're more and more reluctant to learn them younger people who are born into this will, will put them together in ways that uh, folks of our generation cannot see. And, and to me, that's a very, very powerful opportunity. Absolutely. Um, uh, there's so many good ones. Uh, this builds a little bit on what you were just saying, or it's like a counterpoint to it. Uh, Mark Tardy, Tardy says a great conversation. His question is about, um, uh, do you think we can combat what is, in my mind anyway, the scourge of increasing nationalism and tribalism in many places in the world, uh, given the uh, clear need for trust in the social contract, uh, the common good, and as Roman notes, the role of empathy. So the, the youth are this force for change and, and I would say empathy and care, uh, but there are these countervailing trends that just have come out so powerfully during this pandemic particularly, but we're even predating it. Um, how big a part of the climate problem is subsumed by that bigger question? Well, if I just say something briefly on that, I mean, I think one of the really striking phenomena in recent years has been the, not just the rise of far-right populism with that nationalist sort of tribalist um, aspect to it, but the way that the far-right is starting to draw on the language of environmentalism itself. So the idea of uh, Naomi Klein's called eco-fascism, we see this with Marine Le Pen in France, of course, you know, has in the last few years been talking about, we need to, uh, you know, create a, a greener, more environmental country. Well, how are we going to do it? By keeping immigrants out, right? And, and this is growing and growing and growing. And I, I saw a recent survey of, I think, 27 far-right uh, political parties across Europe, and about 20 of them claim to care about the global environment in some sense but a lot of it's coming from this position of a kind of exclusionary nationalism yeah. and i think yeah. it's a really um dangerous and problematic development and of course you know everything i all the work i've always been doing has been about trying to expand beyond the borders beyond the bodies of of, of the ego of the self but particularly beyond the boundaries of the nation state that's about expanding empathy across space you know with people in living in other countries, in low-income countries and so on, but also we need to expand our empathy through time and be able to step into the shoes of future generations. I noticed there was a question earlier about seventh generation um, thinking right. from Gerard, one of the earliest questions. And that kind of idea, which we find in indigenous communities is so powerful and so important. And if I can just say one more thing briefly here, um, thinking that that seventh generation idea found in Lakota communities and the Moluccas Islands and so on, that idea might sound like, oh, that's indigenous people talk about seventh generation thinking, making decisions based on seven generations ahead. But what about in my, what about if I live in Shanghai or Dubai or Miami or New York? You know, how do we apply this? And since Kate did bring out a, a prop, her lovely donut, I'm going to just quickly put on a Japanese robe. Ah, I was going to ask you about this, but go for it. So this robe is been given to me by the future design movement in Japan. And what future design does, it's a form of 
um, local government decision-making directly inspired by the Native American idea of seventh-generation decision-making. And what they do is they invite local people to discuss and draw up plans for the towns and cities where they live. Half of them are told their residents from the present day, and the other half are given these robes to wear exactly like this and told to imagine themselves from the year 2060. And it turns out the residents from 2060 systematically advocate far more transformative plans for the towns and cities, whether it's long-term investment in healthcare or action on climate. And this is now spreading to big cities like Kyoto, Japan's Ministry of Finance, big companies. The point here though, I think is that it's a kind of counter to the decline of democracy and the rise of far-right nationalism. It's actually trying to get us to think about the future, but also reviving participatory democracy through something's really of the form of citizens' assemblies or citizens' juries, so bringing people back in. And that helps deal with that problem of nationalism in some ways. Spectacular. And I, I want, I, I'm dead set to do another webcast or two on that phenomenon. I was in touch with a couple of those Japanese scholars who are working with you on that. Uh, there's another model that's been employed here in the States. Um, the What had been called the Jefferson Center now has a new name. It's the Center for New Democratic Models or something like that. But they were one of the or originators of the civic jury model, which is very much what you're talking about working out through dialogue locally. And one of the questions gets at this, um, and it's also one of the debates I think within the environmental movement, uh, the, the local and personal responsibility versus governments uh, using courts and the like to force change from the top. Um, you've heard this recently in the context that uh, the carbon footprint is, is, is greenwash as opposed to uh, something that's actually helpful. Um, the question from Julia Milo is, if, if everyone keeps pointing the finger at others, what must tactically be done to make everyone more self-responsible toward the environment? How do we employ the fundamentals of empathy and donut economics to enable everyone to take action and move the needle? J just so you know, I'm going to consolidate a couple things here. Uh, there was another question about time scale. You know, we don't have time <laughs> for donut economics. We need to do something actionable now. Um, and another one asked, um, what are five things we can do, um, you know, in the real in, in the near term? So maybe let's dig in. Use that as a way to dig in on what are the some, some next steps you would, or tools that you offer even now, Kate, and then and then Roman, for a community uh, a campaigner, uh, uh, an official, a corporate leader. What what what's the toolkit here? What are some concrete things? So, done economics came out as a book in 2017. And when I started going around giving presentations about it, people would just come up to me afterwards and say, love these ideas and I'm doing it. I'm teaching it in my classroom. I'm taking it into my town meeting. I'm taking it into the board meeting. I'm taking it to my community action group. And it was really clear to me, people wanted to put these ideas in practice. And so I co-founded Donors Economics Action Lab as a place of bringing together these change makers who are popping up everywhere and in, in a lovely spirit against this sense of nationalism that we're seeing, just I, I'm getting to work with change makers all over the world who are literally just contacting us from their context, whether it's cities in India or uh, Sweden or, or California saying we want to put this to practice and we are creating tools for using in places. So let me just speak to the tools that we create say for, for towns and cities and neighborhoods. Uh, we invite every place to ask itself this question, how can your city or town be a home to thriving people in an ecologically thriving place while respecting the well-being of all people and the health of the whole planet? And so that means thinking about the well-being of people who live in this city 
and the ecology of this place, the, the, how are we cleaning the air and storing carbon and welcoming wildlife in the way we construct our city, but also respecting our impact on the planet and that's the global empathy. How do we have a carbon footprint and a material footprint on the world through our global supply chains and how do we impact people worldwide? And it's, it, the empathy is very real. I was actually in a workshop today with people in Amsterdam there's around 10,000 undocumented people living in the city of Amsterdam who, because they're undocumented, cannot get above that social foundation, cannot meet their rights and needs to housing, food, healthcare, education, income. And so we were working with them to say, how can this be a tool to empower you? Next week, the city of Amsterdam, which was the first city, let me, right here, in April 2020, Amsterdam created this city portrait um, together with us. It's a portrait of the city of Amsterdam through the lens of the donut. And they said, now, 18 months later, we're gonna hold ourselves to account. So next week, I'm going to Amsterdam for the first time outside the UK in a long time, because they're going to be saying, how are we making progress on this goal? And there's an organization called the Amsterdam Donut Coalition, which is a network of all sorts of organizations in the city saying, we want to put this into practice. How do we get momentum? So actually, Donut economics is being put into practice as a very practical momentum building tool by organizations worldwide. I invite anybody to come on our platform and look at what we're doing and what they're doing. Because for me, it's all about turning, taking it off from ideas on the page and putting it into transformative action. I'm, I'm dedicating my time on working on this. With businesses, we have a whole other program that we're starting to develop, but it is about transforming the design of our places and putting into place the policies and the lifestyle changes. I just say on the personal note, there's a lot we can each do, right? How we power our homes, how we save our money, what we eat, how we travel, what we think is a good holiday. I personally signed up to some fantastic initiative called takethejump.org uh, last year in, in, in yeah, December last year, so for nine months now. And it gives you these six things that you can do if you want to live a lifestyle that brings global heating under 1.5 degrees or helps keep it there. It's about eating a plant-based diet, taking a flight only once every seven or eight years, buying only one or two new items of clothing a year, upgrading your phone and electronics about once every six or seven years, and then getting into action and lobbying um, your government or, or, or the system and not owning your own car. And I'm, I live in a city that enables me to have the privilege to give up owning a car and we have a we joined a car sharing club it's been a really interesting personal journey of what you think is a sacrifice actually turns out to be a bit of a liberation. So there are things we can do right from the personal level through to the systemic level and I, I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by change makers who I'm seeing putting into action and there's so much mobilization going on. By the way, can either of you or both of you stay on a few extra minutes. Is that okay? Sure. This is this is a particularly rich conversation, so I hope we can do that. And I see uh, a, a few more com comments coming in that are really great. Um, the one thing, uh, and by the way, everyone should know it's DonutEconomics.org, right? Spelled D-O-U-G-H, not That's the it. shorthand D-O-N-U-T, DonutEconomics.org for more on that. Um, and I assume if everyone just Googles for a good ancestor and Roman Krasnarek, they'll find lots of your stuff, Roman, right? Um, the, let's see, well, I, I get one of the questions was here is what's your sales pitch to those who are really stuck on the growth model? Like if you go into a room with the CEO or, um, a, um, a politician who says, well, I can't possibly talk about this. You know, my constituents would run the other direction. 
what's your sales pitch for this this model well to be honest i don't have a sales pitch because our our strategy for working is go where the energy is and work with those who already want to bring about transformation i was a mother of these tiny children when the book came out and thought i have no time to knock on shut doors i'm not going to waste my time there are so many people who want to do this and actually i think the real sales pitch whether it's to a, a, a business director or to a city mayor or government is to see it's not me standing on a stage or on a podcast trying to convince them it's seeing somebody like themselves another ceo another mayor another politician who's doing that thing they thought was impossible, but look over there, it's already happening. That is the most persuasive thing. So we focus our energy on working with those pioneers who are running ahead. And then they become the most persuasive reason for others to think, mm, maybe I'm the one who's stuck in the past and the action's over there. Can I just add a little something for that, to yeah, that sure. just from the perspective of thinking about um, intergenerational justice issues, is that like when I go and give talks, for example, to um, politicians or sometimes CEOs, those kind of people. I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to connect with them? How am I going to get them to care about the world that our children and children's children are going to inhabit? Well, exactly through that, through the idea of children and family, even if I want to talk to politicians about something technical like discount rates, I almost always start by talking about the idea of the legacies that they want to leave, the fact that most of them have children, grandchildren, godchildren, young people in their lives who they really care about. And I often get them to close their eyes and do an imaginative exercise where they imagine a young person in their life when they're 90 years old. And they imagine that 90 year old giving a speech about their departed ancestor, about them, about what they did to make the, their world a better place. And it's like a bridge to having a conversation about some of the more complex policy issues and so on. But if we can get everyone in the room, and it really works, whether you're on, whether the politicians are on the left or the right, or you're from a big multinational corporation or a local ecopreneur, um, you know, there's something that we can all agree on there, which is we care about the world that our children's children are going to inhabit. You know, and we know that if we want, if my, our daughter, and our son, you know, uh, may well be alive in the year 2100. If we care about their life, their lives, we have to care about all life because they need air to breathe and water to drink. There's something that we all share in common. I think that's, there's a power uh, in that, in terms of communication of, of these issues. So with the communication point in mind, we'll, we'll come toward the end here. Uh, we're communicating miraculously, joining people from all around the world here. Uh, and you two from different parts of your house <laughs> and me from the Lenape territory and, and in the river called the Hudson River Valley named for a guy who happened to poke his boat in the, the river here in 1609, uh, Henrik Hudson. Um, what's, what's the role of the internet? What's the role of global connectedness of data? The, the miraculous things we can do here. Uh, we've seen the downside of it in the Trump era, uh, not just with him, but with the way misinformation flies around. Uh, uh, are you confident or nervous of looking at the evolving information landscape as it relates to the goals you've all laid out? I'll jump in and say, for me, the first of all, the personal level, the, the, the role of the internet has been massive. Most of the people I work with, I've met literally over Twitter. Andy, I think our first connection was me saying, oh, Lord, you know, an Anthropocene's bad enough. Does it have to be the Manthropocene? And you pick that up and here we are. We know each other. Right. So actually, it's an amazing way. And I have to say, when I was a student of economics and I was frustrated, that was in, what, 1993. Um, and I was just frustrated, so I walked away. Well, um, 
decades later, post-financial crash, um, 2012-13, when economic students are really frustrated with economics, they connected on the internet and they founded Rethinking Economics, which is now a global movement of students calling to rewrite the discipline. So it has amazing, obviously, organizing power. Um, and the, all the change makers that we're working with worldwide, we are connecting. So my organization, thanks to COVID, we actually learned we don't need to be a physical organization based in a little ox office in little Oxford in little Brexit Britain. Why would you do that? We can be an online organization employing people all over the world. And we're now advertising yeah. to hire people internationally. And that's an amazing liberation. So I'm hugely grateful for learning that remote learning, remote working can be incredibly empowering. Um, I think much of what's going to help transform the world is learning from each other, learning the courage, learning the example, saying, hey, look what they did there. That's amazing. And if they did it, we can do it. And so we need that international connection. So I, I absolutely believe in, I mean, all, of, all the ways that the internet is being twisted and captured, but there's a whole, it's up for grabs. And there are many, many ways that we can harness these tools to bring about change that we definitely can't without. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. And Roman, I think it's pretty clear we wouldn't have met uh, if it weren't for the miracle of all this connectedness. And yep. the digital divide that's out there is, is, is to me just as much a part of that climate divide. The people who are not able to get online in rural uh, parts of the world, uh, the most the poorest among us, uh, you, see macro, you see transformational potential. The, the women who do the farming in parts of Kenya with a cell phone have, have a transformed economics. Uh, they can control their money. Uh, it's such an important part of how we go. On the forward. other hand, I mean, I just wanted just, just to add to that slightly, just to recommend a couple of books to people if they haven't read them. Um, one of them you probably know, which is The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshona Zuboff, yeah. which is you know, a, a political economy critique of the digital world and raising the question of who owns it and our data and how is it used. Um, but then another more recent book that's come out, which I think is brilliant by Kate um, Crawford uh, called The Atlas of AI about artificial intelligence. And the argument of the book is about the way equally we have to think of the way that AI is developing and raise those same questions that Zuboff kind of raises, which is what's the political economy underneath it? What are the labor conditions, the inequalities, the racism that's built into these technologies, the minerals that are being used? Where's the lithium coming from? It's not just about fantasizing about, are we going to live in the world of the matrix or not? Yeah. So, and I think this comes back to Kate's point really that underlying it, which is we, there, there are social struggles that are going to be happening and are happening in this digital realm that we need to democratize the tools so they can be used well to create donut coalitions, to create movements, to create disruption. And I'm going to jump in. On any yeah. technology, on any organization, we can ask ourselves, what is its purpose? So, so AI or, um, you know, the internet platform or any platform, what is its purpose? Why does it exist in the world? What is it in service of? How is it networked with its customers, with its suppliers, with its users? How is it building relationships? How is it governed? Who has voice in decision making? What are the incentives and the metrics of success? And crucially, how is this technology being owned? Who owns it? Because who owns it profoundly shapes how it's financed and what that finance expects and demands and whether it cuts against the purpose or actually is in service of it. So I use these five design traits that I learned from Marjorie Kelly as a, a bit like being a detective on the world, whether it's about a business, whether it's about a technology, 
it all comes down to how it's deeply designed and that will shape what it does and can be in the world. Fantastic. Well, uh, Severine has popped up here again to help close things out. I want to show one last thing because everything that you've described so far is a mix of um, motivation and, and then measurement uh, or, or attempts at measurement. And without that motivation, without that ethical construct at the core, it's, it's hard to know it's hard to be confident about, let me, let me put it this way. My sense after being a science writer for so long is that it's the ethical and narrative and motivational parts of these issues that will carry us through, not the science. So the science, as I said earlier, just paints the landscape. And I, this came to me at the Vatican in the, the most wonderful way from Walter Monk, who uh, passed away a couple of years ago. He was in his late nineties at the Vatican. He went on to live to be 101. He's one of the great oceanographers, a mathematical oceanographer, like you know, a numbers guy. And we were at this meeting at the Vatican on sustainable humanity, sustainable planet, our responsibility. And um, I asked him at the end of a uh, dinner, I was sitting there with him and I said, uh, Walter, there he is on the right uh, at an aquarium we met up at later. Uh, I said, Walter, you know, how are we gonna get through? What's gonna happen here? Um, what's your sense of what will make a difference and create a sustainable journey? And he didn't say fusion or a carbon price. He said, it'll take a miracle of love and unselfishness. And that has resonated with me ever since. And that gets back to some of the concepts that you both articulated here, I think so compellingly here. Um, motivation, orientation, action to, access to tools and community will carry us forward. So it's been wonderful to have Columbia Global Center host this event part of Climate Week NYC here. Every week, of course, will be Climate Week through this, the rest of the century. And um, I'm Andy Revkin with the Earth Institute. I will be doing more. I would love to have both of you back on my, my webcast sometime to dig in on some of these particular tra uh, trails you, of crumbs you've led, particularly the Japanese model. We, we'll do that. So thank you again. And over to you, Severine. Thanks, both of you. Yes, thank you so much on behalf of the Columbia Global Centers, the American Library, and the Institute for Ideas and Imagination, uh, Andrew, Roman, and Kate for opening our series Entre Nous uh, with this extremely rich and productive conversation. I think by now we all know what a renegade economist is and will sound very fancy at dinner parties and what the role of a public philosopher is. I even saw a comment in the chat asking if Norwegians need more public philosophers after you showed a slide, Kate. Um, and I think the obvious answer to that after this conversation is that we all need uh, more public philosophers. Uh, I also think I speak for our audience when I say that the props were a great asset to this talk. I think I've never seen, <laughs> I've never witnessed a, a, a webinar with so many great props from the psychedelic, psychedelic bagel, uh, the Japanese robe, and the donut diagram. So more significantly, uh, Andrew, uh, Roman, and Kate, I want to thank you for leaving us today with the hopeful and really beautiful image of the heartbeat, inviting us to reconnect with a sustainable life that expands, to use your for formula, uh, Roman, empathy across space and time. So thank you as well to our international audience for engaging with us in this conversation through your contributions in the Q&A. We hope some of you will come, will join us uh, to our next in-person event on October 5th at the Columbia Global Centers Paris for our discussion with writers and activists, Dina Nayeri and Alice Baum. Merci beaucoup.
Merci. À bientôt. Merci. Thanks, both of you. Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to Sustain What, a production of the Initiative on Communication and Sustainability at Columbia University's Climate School. If you like, send your feedback or ideas for future shows to j.mp slash sustainwhatfeedback. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and build a better world. Mm -hmm.